So last week, I got a phone call from an old friend who used to live in Dothan, Alabama, where we live. And he was like, hey, so I was listening to your guys' podcast and didn't even realize that like inductive Bible study was a thing. But basically, I've been trying to like teach that to this small group at my church. <laughs> been trying to like teach these guys how to do like an in-depth Bible study, like very much inductive Bible study style. That's cool. I was like, oh my goodness, there's like actual methods and like an actual structure. I don't just have to like try to figure it out based on what makes sense. So he really wants to teach inductive Bible study to these guys and was asking me any other resources that I have. So I suggested a few books that I knew of that are kind of like a more not textbook version mm-hmm. of inductive Bible study. Um, one's called Bible study that works. And then there's one called life changing Bible study. And those are both like smaller versions. Nice. But then I was like, or I could just like talk to you if you want to call sometime and we can talk through. So he, we talked um, earlier in the week and really talked through. All right. You should have recorded that. You're right. <laughs> That's a great idea. Actually, next time we talk, I probably will ask him to go ahead and record it. That'd be cool. It could be like a little mini like a bonus episode. Yeah, spinoff. Yeah. Special. Because, but a lot of what we talked about was just like more in depth on book surveys and like some of the concepts of inductive Bible study. Hmm. It, it, it was fun. Um, but he wants to talk more about interpretation because we didn't even get into that. So that, that goes well right. into what we're talking about today. We're going to move into interpretation. Yes. And then um, Sunday, I talked to a, a young woman in our church who was like, hey, I finally listened to episodes two and three of the podcast, and it was so like helpful. I really feel like I was learning about the Bible, and she's been like studying the Bible, reading the Bible her whole life, basically. Mm. Um, she gets really excited about some new ways to consider the Bible. So um, I know people are enjoying the inductive Bible study stuff. I hope that that continues. And I hope that people are able to also get stuff out of the other topics in the same way. I think they will. But I definitely I have been inspired to do more work in inductive Bible study and try to um, figure out how to distill it and put it into a form that people can really access. So I've been kind of working on that some over the past couple of weeks as well. That's awesome. So uh, today we're planning on doing the last one on inductive Bible study, at least for now. If we continue to get a lot of people wanting more on inductive Bible study, we might have to Mm -hmm. do some more on it, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the last major step in the method that I covered in my first class. Right. Not getting into application. Yeah. Um, There's certainly much more to say. I mean, even just in Matthew, which I was covering, there's some really awesome stuff in chapter 16. And then also some of my favorite stuff came in chapter 28 uh, with the crucifixion and the resurrection. So we'll see how it goes. But like you said, for now, we're doing the interpretation, jumping in where we left off in Matthew chapter five. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on the last step of observation. There's one more. Um, called detailed observation. Yeah, we could go through one of those, but I think for now it's more important to get to interpretation. Yep. And what we're going to do is pick out one of the questions that we came up with from our segment survey and examine that and try to come up with a good interpretation. So you want to start by just articulating what your question is. In this case, our question is, what is meant by Jesus' statement in chapter 548a? You, therefore, must be perfect. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Yeah, so in interpretation, you're like all through the observation, you're asking tons and tons of questions. When you move to interpretation, you're picking one question or one like collection of similar questions, and you're answering that question. One question or 
What? Similar questions? You remember how when we were doing the book and segment survey, we were talking about continually asking a bunch of questions the whole time. And so we had several. Yes. So this is just picking out one of those and then spending your time really drilling down and examining it. Okay. So again, the question for today is, what is meant by Jesus' statement in chapter 5, 48a? You, therefore, must be perfect. It's an enigmatic passage, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think we discussed it a little bit last time, didn't we? Yeah, a little bit, but it was mostly in, we were doing it, yeah, through, uh, like, the observation, so the goal wasn't to necessarily, like, come to an answer. Mm, Yeah, I guess we, our discussion mostly revolved around how many people seem to ignore that part or struggle with it. Yep. Okay, so... How do you start in your interpretation? What's a good place to start? So first, we want to just identify the tools that we're going to use to interpret this passage. In the course, they call these relevant determinants. Yeah, that makes sense. That really just means... Pertinent data. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's, I guess that's, yeah, useful tools for this specific passage. (laughs) Relevant determinants. I think, yeah, relevant, I think data is good. Relevant, relevant data Good stuff. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> yeah, how simple can we possibly make this? Anyway, so the textbook lists several of these. I'm going to go over these briefly, and I'll put them in the show notes. You have the preliminary definition, literary context, word usage, scriptural testimony, kinds of terms, inflection and syntax, literary form, psychological factors, tone or atmosphere, author's purpose and viewpoint, historical background, history of terms, history of the text, history of the tradition, interpretation by others. Okay. Golly. So now everybody is real clear on that. Yeah, I was going to say, are we going to discuss each of those or is that just for your information? I'd say that's just for your information if you're doing this study. I'll put them in the show notes and people can look at those different tools. But let's talk about the ones we're actually going to use and we'll go through. And the first that... Especially for this context where we're looking at you, therefore, must be perfect. Um, we're, we're asking what is meant by that. So obviously the big question there is that word perfect. So we're going to start with the preliminary definition of the word perfect. Yeah, I think normally in interpretation, you're going to want to do some um, definitions first. Mm-hmm. with whatever your your verse is or your question is. There's most likely going to be some words in there that you want to be sure the way that you understand it is like the same like in Hebrew or Greek or the biblical definition that you understand it. So Okay, so when you say start with definitions, you mean usually looking to the source language? You're right, yeah. Right. So I was curious, what comes to mind for each of you when you think of the word perfect? Flawless. Yep. No mistake or error. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much that's what it is. I I generally think of it in terms of like accomplishing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's good. I I think maybe absolutely as intended, you could say. I just did a quick Google search and the first thing that comes up is Ed Sheeran's song. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, that's a great song. Yeah, well, I have fond memories because my wife walked down to the aisle to a violin version of that. Yeah. And I will play that now. Here's a segment from my wedding, my wedding audio. Any thoughts? Makes me miss Kentucky. Oh, yeah.
I remember the about hobbits from your wedding. Oh, yeah. Yes. That was awesome, too. That was when the guys, all of us, were walking in. Yeah, that was the best part. That was the best part of the wedding when you walked in? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean that. I meant the song. And, like... I, I could see the reaction of uh, certain members of the audience. Mm-hmm. Just being so thrilled that the Lord of the Rings music was in the wedding. It's like, yes. Generally the Sigler clan. Yes. Yeah. I'll tell Riley to skip this episode. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I love violin covers, and there's nothing wrong with the melody of that song. I just kind of disagree with the lyric. I mean, how can a... How can, well, I guess we were all called to be perfect. I shouldn't ask this question. Never mind. <laughs> Here we go. We're getting into it. I was going to say, though... That was the first thing that came up. But then I scrubbed down to the Webster definition. And so this is what the English definition says. Being entirely without fault or defect. Flawless. A perfect diamond is the example. Um, You also have satisfying all requirements. Accurate. And then third, corresponding to an ideal standard or abstract concept. A perfect gentleman. So basically what Daniel had said. I actually wrote perfect on one of my students' uh, little quizzes today because she was the only one in the class who didn't even make a single little mistake. What was she working on? They, uh, I'm trying to get them to understand the causative verbs, uh, which means the difference between make someone do something, let someone do something, get someone to do something, or have someone do something. Hmm. Interesting. So they would say, like, I'm going to let you... I'm going to... <laughs> can't think of anything the most often mistake i would hear them make is um like my mom let me go to bed uh-huh okay okay yeah or something that's like what that. i was they trying mean, to say yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they mean <laughs> they mean made me right and actually that was one thing a little strange to me in some of the language i've studied is when there's like not a, as clear of a distinction between those or like we have them but we don't really use one of them that was just interesting because to us it's just such a basic part of the language mm-hmm Joel, are you seeing that with Malachi, like him picking up the English language and the rules that are supposed to be used, but they're incorrect because of the weird way our language is structured? Oh, definitely. And we correct him. Um, That's one thing that we've tried to do ever since he was really young is not like some people, they use incorrect grammar when they're talking to babies or kids Mm. to like try to sound cutesy or to like sound like they sound. Yeah. But we've always been real intentional to like correct him and to use proper grammar. And it's really interesting how quickly he picks it up. Hmm. He doesn't wow. seem like discouraged or indignant if, uh, cor- no. if it's like, why would it be like that? Okay. No, he doesn't like, um, I don't remember what, let me think. Like there was a past tense the other day that he was using. Um, and well, he used one that, like the ED. Yeah, one that I hear a lot with little kids is they say, I knowed it. Node? Like instead of new. Right. And if you think, I mean, the rule, you add the ED for past tense, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I knowed it. Catched, I catched it or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so it was something like that. One of those, um, I think it was actually because we had just sold our car that he said I, we um, sold it or something like that. Sold? Sold or something. I don't remember. Maybe it wasn't that because that wouldn't make sense. Yeah, 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 sold. And so I said, sold. I said, we say sold. I sold it. Uh-huh. And then the next time he used it correctly. Uh, so amazing how kids are like sponges for information. Yeah. So anyway, it's it's neat to see that. And yeah, he's, he does not, he's not indignant about it at all. It's like he like wants to 
be correct. Yeah, that's the difference between older kids yeah. too. Is like, or older kids or adults learning too. Is they're kind of like, what? It was like this the last time. Why has it changed? Uh huh. Little and little kids just kind of take it and as whatever. Mm-hmm. Take it as they get it. Yeah, just accept it. So perfect for our purposes. We're gonna look at the Greek understanding of the word perfect. Yes. Um, and there's multiple ways to do this. The way that I learned in class is through a website or app called Blue Letter Bible. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy this method. So if you if you want to join along, join me at blueletterbible.org. <laughs> and when you go there, you're going to see it has a place to put in a verse or word or topic. And then you can select your translation. So I'm just going to put in Matthew 5:48 and then you're going to want to select the NASB. And then it's going to show you all the verses in chapter 5. And when you click on one, so Matthew 5:48, it's going to show you all the words and then a number that corresponds to that word that represents the Greek version. So I'm going to scroll down and find perfect and click on that. Isn't there a physical edition of a blue letter Bible? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I know, obviously, like what Paul's looking at doing, there's physical versions of that. You can get like an interlinear Bible or what's called like a Strong's um, Concordance has those numbers and everything. Okay. So if you're following along, you'll see the Strong's number is G5046. <laughs> but more interesting, the word perfect is the Greek word teleos. How's the pronunciation on that? That sounds Is that about right? Teleos? Teleos? Teleos. So right away, you'll see the the word, the way it's written in Greek. You'll see the pronunciation. You can listen to that if you want. You'll see the part of speech, the root word or etymology. So really interesting information. But my favorite part is, well, it gives you a great definition, obviously, but then it also shows you all the other times that the word appears in the book and then in the New Testament. So it's really helpful. Yeah, that does sound great. So for our purposes, we're talking about the definition, right? Yes. So let's look at that. It says, brought to an end, finished. That's number one. Number two, wanting nothing necessary for completeness. Um, Number three, just says perfect. Translating teleos, so perfect is one of the definitions. So in my interpretation then, I'm gonna jot that stuff down, you know, Perfect is this word teleos. It can mean brought to an end, finished, lacking nothing necessary for completeness. When it's talking about people, it can mean full grown or adult or mature. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm going to go ahead and jot down some inferences from that evidence. So I'm going to say this implies that perfect in 548 may mean finished or lacking nothing. So right off the bat there, we're we've got some really useful information to help us with this interpretation just by looking up the Greek word. You see how that's kind of different too from the... From the pure English? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when, when we're doing an interpretation, like we said, you're starting with this relevant evidence, basically, right? The relevant determinant? Yes, thank you. When you're finding those, <laughs> then you're going to make what Paul said, you're going to like make some inferences based off of it. Okay, it's like, what is this? What does this evidence lead to? So when we're looking at like a a definition, for example, um, the first one Paul mentioned is brought to an end or finished. Mm -hmm. So if that is the way that this word teleos is being used 
here, then the inference would be to be perfect means we're we're finished or like something is brought to an end. Or you could move to the other one like, oh, if it mm-hmm. means wanting nothing, then to be perfect would mean that I have no need. Okay, there's a completeness in us. Then you could go down to the oh, different. Mm-hmm. That's not how I would have taken that. Having no need. Uh-huh. I would have taken it as like, hmm. well, I guess that's true. I was just thinking that like we have all the tools that it takes to get there. Okay. But then like we still have, we need to use them. But I guess what you're saying, having no need, that'd be like no external need. No, that's good. Okay. So what exactly what you said would be another inference you would want to write down. Okay. You would want to say it could mean this, that we have all the tools we need. Okay. So you're just. Okay. So. Mm-hmm. At this stage, you just want to go ahead and do inferences whether you agree with them or not. Yes. Because even the thing like brought to an end, yes. like I kind of right away want to throw that one out because it's like, well, I know that we're supposed to keep developing and growing. Right. Yeah, you want to continue to write – you want to write them down anyway because mm-hmm. if the weight of the evidence is towards something that you disagree with, then you're wrong mm-hmm. or else you are you need to do some more digging and figure out why your evidence is wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. You don't want to just use like your own – presuppositions and like base knowledge if it goes against the weight of scripture the evidence so you want to give each definition and each inference that's drawn from that a fair look yeah and then the the more you get like the more you go through the different evidence then like you're going to want to pull out like the common like what what is the common inferences like do they agree with each other does that make sense so like if if we start going through the other evidence and nothing else sounds like coming to an end is the correct answer, then we're going to want to throw that out because it's like, okay, well, this is a possible translation of perfect, but none of the other evidence backs that up. Okay, so not the other definitions, but the other right. evidence found mm-hmm. elsewhere in the verse. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and you'll do that throughout the whole interpretation. Okay. So sometimes when I've been d- done interpretations in the past, like one of my inferences is something I'm like, there's no way this can be the correct like interpretation, mm. but I'm still writing it out because it's like, well, this specific piece of evidence could point to that being the answer. And so I still want to make a note of those things. Okay. Then we have those other potential definitions of yep. kind of that idea of full grown adult age mature. So you may want to note that as well. That's part of the reason I was asking you if- we can throw out inferences because just seeing seeing that it kind of waters down a lot of the impact of what that phrase is if it's if you're just saying oh he's saying be mature like i am or like act your age right which some people have done like some people have done that and tried to water it down so that's what we want to figure out is that appropriate to do here or not yeah okay so don't be afraid of recording and investigating inferences that contradict your theology or your understanding of the bible yeah, I think that's really important so that we don't just get stuck in a rut and just assume, presume that the Bible is saying what we think it should say. The inductive Bible study is all about letting the Bible speak for itself. Yeah, this goes back to what we talked about in episode one about inductive versus deductive and not bringing our own presuppositions to the text. And Joel, when you say it that way, it sounds obvious. You know, of course, I you know shouldn't bring personal opinion and biases into my interpretation. But then when you apply it to something like this, where I'm like, could Jesus saying be perfectly imperfect really just mean something as pat and boring as act your age or be mature? Right. But I guess, you know, you need to have it there and then be able to rule it out legitimately instead of just casting it aside. That's right. 
The next thing that I did in my interpretation of this when I was doing the assignment is I went ahead and looked at the etymology. They give you that option on Blue Letter Bible. So I was able to see that teleos, our word for perfect, comes from telos, which has a definition of end, termination, the limit. Uh, just giving you more background information. And that even comes from the primary telo, which is to set out for a definite point or goal. Wait, can you say what this part is that you're talking about? So I'm just looking now at where the word teleos comes from, the root word. So the root word of teleos is telos, mm. which has a slightly different definition of end, termination, the limit. Okay, okay. So again, this isn't super necessary, but it, it's, it is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let me just say, uh, Paul hasn't taken Greek yet. And so you don't have to have Greek in order to do some of the like do this work. Yeah, I don't know any Greek. There's great tools available to really like figure out the definitions in the Greek. And so he's mentioned Blue Letter Bible. Another one is called Bible Hub. Those are both websites that have Greek definitions and you can find your English word and figure out what the Greek word is. So don't feel like intimidated. Look up a Greek definition. Mm -hmm. It's totally doable without any knowledge of Greek. Yeah, it's a lot of fun too. All right, so should we move on there from definitions? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go on to the next step. You can already see how we've got some ground, potential answers to our question about what it means to be perfect. Um, and then we're going to move on to the next. Which is, at least the one that I chose, is context. Possibly the most important. What do you mean the one that you chose? So he had that huge list of relevant determinants, ah. the potential evidences that you're going to look at. Mm -hmm. But context is one you always have to use. Okay, but there's not really a set order or like priority ranking. Uh, I think the order that they they put an order on them, and I think it's probably helpful to go in that order because like it's really good to start with definitions, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just good to start there. And then like context you want to do early because it's so important yeah. to be considering the context of the passage. So I do think the order matters some. And like the last one is uh, opinions of others. So you're going to be looking at commentaries. And that's important to do last so that it doesn't bias the whole rest of your influence here. Yeah. 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 So it, it is important to do mm -hmm. the order, I think. Context. Definitely one of the most important steps. So you should have Bibles out and open for this. Our listeners should have their Bibles out. I would say if listeners are in a place where they can open a Bible, yeah, that would be really gonna, helpful. If you're driving, but... don't open your Bible. Yeah, if you're driving, you're jogging or chopping vegetables, then go off your working knowledge of Matthew chapter 5. I mean, we read the whole thing in the last episode. So because we've done a segment survey and a detailed observation before this, we should be pretty familiar with the context already, mm -hmm. which is why the interpretation phase isn't going to take as long as it would have if we hadn't spent that time in observation. Okay. So I'll just go through some of the things that I pointed to as important context when it comes to interpreting this passage. So the first one I said is looking at perfection in verse 48a, right? That's what we're trying to look at. Mm -hmm. And let me just say, this is where you start to see some of the helpfulness of the structural relationships, because I'm going to be drawing on a lot of those when talking about context. Yep. So number one, whereas perfection in verse 48a is compared to the perfection of the heavenly father in verse 48b, let me just read that verse. Yeah. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So we have comparison between you being perfect compared to the perfection of the heavenly father. So the fact that you're 
perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So there's that comparison really does help the way we understand that word perfect, because if you think that mature is the best answer or that complete is the best answer, any of those are going to have to be compared to the father, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you say you must be mature, like your heavenly father is mature, that's still a super high standard because you're being compared to God. Right. And so that's really mature is a weird word to use for God. I know it is. It's a strange, strange word to use for God. Like, what does it mean? What is God's maturity like? Then you get into looking up definitions of of maturity, I suppose. But to me, that word really has heavy connotations of um, growth. And I don't think God, he hasn't increased in anything. Yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. But you see how this is going to start to address that watered down version of the word perfect. Yeah. As soon as you start looking at the immediate context, because you can't water it down when the standard is God. And if you look up just a few verses above, so verse 45, Jesus is talking about specific attributes of the father there. Mm -hmm. So I said the perfection of the heavenly father in 48 may be giving specific context to verse 45. What attributes in 45 does it say? Yeah. uh, You want to read that 45 there? Um, he causes the, his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Right. So what I noted then in my inference is possibly this implies that perfection in this verse involves doing good to all persons, regardless of them being good or evil, just or unjust. Because again, it's compared to the father mm-hmm. and that's what we see the father doing in this immediate context. Yeah, so you want to, as you're comparing the the perfection we're called to is compared to the Father's perfection. So like what do we see in the Father through this section? So that's the mo- the closest thing that you're seeing. Right, exactly. So another point on context that I noted is likewise the actions described in verses 46 and 47 contrast the perfection described in verse 48a. Okay, so the lead, like what, what it says leading up to that to that phrase, that therefore phrase. Yes, exactly. I'm just looking at the immediate context. Let me read this section for you guys so it's a little more clear. Starting at 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So I'm just noting the contrast between what he's expecting us to do and what he's saying the Gentiles and tax collectors do. Yep. So again, there's that relationship of contrast between this love only of your friends and love only of those who love you. This is contrasted to the perfection we're called to. Yeah. So it seems to me that something about this word perfect deals directly with not just loving people because they love you. That to me sounds like it quite limits the scope of the perfection that he's talking about. Yeah. So we're going to, like, like we've said, we're going to not make our final answers. We're going to just use all this as evidence. All right. Another point from the context is that the perfection in 48a seems to relate to the exceeding righteousness that we read about in verse 20 by way of fulfillment of the law. So if you remember from last time, Um, In verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then right after this is where Jesus goes into all these examples of the law and... Having a higher standard. 
yeah, having higher expectations of, of fulfilling the law. Hmm. So regarding this exceeding righteousness, Jesus gives six examples, which culminate in verse 48's perfection command. So it's all really leading up to this point of like, what does it mean to be perfect? You must have a higher righteousness than the Pharisees. You must fulfill the law. Like you've heard it said, but I say do this, even a higher standard of righteousness. And then it all comes to this point of being perfect. So all that's going to factor into how we understand what it means to be perfect. So the implication from this to me is that perfection may be necessary for one entering the kingdom of heaven, this perfection. Because hmm. uh, that's what he said in 48. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, in verse 20. Oh, yes, verse 20. Thank you. So from just that inference, it's looking like perfection is necessary for going to heaven. Again, that might be wrong, but you're looking at each one, you know, mm -hmm. and then you're going to look at the collective evidence and uh, draw answers from it. So. so in this case, we're looking at the same sentence as your heavenly father is perfect. We were looking at many of the sentences that led up to that point, I guess, which we know is part of the same conversation. Would we start going into chapter six? I mean, basically, I mean, like, how do you know how far to go either direction? And is that just based on is it the same conversation or not? Yeah, I mean, you're going to want to look at everything you can. The more you look at, the better it's going to be. But that's why we started with a book survey and then moved to a segment survey so that you're able to like figure out what's the most immediate context. So in the segment survey, um, I know it's been a while since we've discussed that. We really talked about where does this segment begin and where does this segment end? Right. The conclusion that we came to was when you hit chapter six, you kind of move into a new segment. And so you still want to consider that but it's not going to carry the same weight as what you think is like the immediate context when he's really talking about the same subject, the same segment that we're in. And if you notice the way that I've been presenting this context, it started with context within the verse itself, 48a versus 48b, the comparison. And then I looked at the context of the verses right around it. And then that last one from verse 20, that's from close to the beginning of the segment. So it's good to start as close as possible and then work your way out. Well, I guess, I guess what inspired that question is because we, we hopped over to verse 20, which is 28 verses before. But yeah, I guess that being part of the same segment as we defined before makes sense. Right. But that's what's going to matter is like if what we were asking a question on was at the beginning of a segment, then we would be looking at mostly material after that, you know, but it's not necessarily just going before your question or the, the text that you're looking at. Okay. It's about like the most relevant. Okay. And again, this is just the way that I have done it. It doesn't mean it's the only way. I think that's a good method, though, is to start with just like the verse, then move to the verses mm -hmm. right around and then move a little farther out that way. Well, now we're going to move further still because this next evidence of context actually takes us to a different chapter near the end of the book. The only reason I found this is because I was looking for other times that Matthew uses this word telios, perfect. And so I just wanted to see, well, how else in the book has Matthew used this? And there's only one other time in the book of Matthew that this is used. And it's in chapter 19, verse 21, in Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. Why don't one of you read 1921? I can, but mine's NIV. It's not NASB. That's fine. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, mine says, go sell your possessions and give to the poor 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So some interesting things about this when I look at it is that perfect here is once again placed in the context of the command to love one's neighbor. Hmm. It's also in the context of fulfilling the commandments. Right. Because before that, he's talking about the commandments. Exactly. And so he says, I've already done this. Mm -hmm. Well, then if you want to be perfect, sell everything. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of similar to what Mm -hmm. we had in Matthew 5, where it's a lot of this about the Old Testament commandments and then going above and beyond those Old Testament commandments. Yep. And it's also seems to be required for discipleship and for eternal life and for entrance to the kingdom. Some of the other things we had noted. Maybe because in this one, it sounds like he's saying, like, how do I have eternal life is the first question. And he says, obey the commandments. Mm -hmm. And then it seems like the rich young ruler probes farther. Like, I've done all this. What else must I do? And so you could say that that means what else must I do to have eternal life? Right. Or like, if I've already done that, I need more. And Jesus is saying there's still more you can do. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I guess it's hard for me to just isolate the implication of the line by itself because this makes it seem like having physical possessions is incompatible with entering the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> yeah, so that's that, that's maybe a uh, tangential question, mm-hmm. as you would want to consider that. Um, but that would be like another interpretive question would be like, why does God tell him to sell everything he has in order to be perfect? I would say another thing we could potentially learn about the word perfect here, though, is that it involves a filling up that which is lacking. Because Jesus says, you know, one thing you still lack. Yeah, that's good. Mm. So it, it is in reference to lacking. Yeah, that's good. Daniel, what I would say to your your point is good. What I would say to that is the reason we're looking here in Matthew 19 is to see what we can learn about the command in chapter 5. Okay. Not just to define the word perfect because God isn't lacking in material possessions, I guess. No, that's good. But you could, you, one of your inferences could be this sounds like perfect requires not having any material possessions. I mean, that's okay to be to be one of your inferences. Mm-hmm. But again, you don't want to get then distracted and just move to trying to figure out Matthew 19 when the goal of going to Matthew 19 is try to help us figure out Matthew 5 okay. right now. Another interesting thing that I would say we can we can glean from chapter 19 is that if you remember after he walks away sad, Jesus says it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven essentially, and the disciples say, "Well, how can anyone be saved?" And Jesus says, what's impossible for man is possible with God. So uh, this implies that perfection is possible, but only as a work of God. So it acknowledges human impossibility, but implies divine empowerment. That's good. One other interesting thing from the rich young ruler section is that the perfect is to be achieved by obeying Jesus' commands to sell your possessions and give to the poor. So that's what, what you're talking about, Daniel, that... Yeah, that specific aspect of it. Um, It's interesting that Jesus has talked previously on the Sermon of the Mount. He says, Mm. where your Mm. treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this suggests that the ultimate motives of the man's life involves the acquiring of possessions for himself versus serious concern for the welfare of others. So the rich young ruler has said that he's obeyed all the commandments. Uh But Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it seems like for this guy, his treasure was focused on himself. And so so has he really obeyed the commands? Well, Jesus is saying, go sell all you have and give to the poor. Put your treasure and your heart onto others and caring for others. And then come and follow me. So again, just using different contexts from the book of Matthew to try to nail down what this means in this passage. You're drawing a similar 
theme is what we see in Matthew 5, where Jesus is going higher than just the letter of the law. It's not just about like, oh, I have obeyed these commands. It's like, where is your heart in this? That's what seems to be called in question with the the rich young rulers, that he's obeyed the letter of the law, according to his own confession. But then there's still something lacking, and it's a heart issue. And then in Matthew 5, you see that same thing. Mm -hmm. He's saying, you've heard it said this, but I say this, unless your righteousness surpasses the religious leaders and Pharisees. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just about obeying the letter of the commandments. It's something deeper than that, um, a heart issue. And so I think that definitely can factor into how we're understanding the commandment to be perfect. Yeah, exactly. And it also implies, I mean, the inference there is that perfect involves our attitude toward others. So I think it becomes more clear as we do this, how you can just look at the context of a passage and really use it to start shedding light on a specific question, where if you just pull this one verse out of context, you can take it all over the place. But now as we start looking at the context around and trying to see how does this help us understand the passage, the verse, um, things really start to come together. And I always wanted to emphasize again, like Paul said, I've always broken the context into like immediate context, which would be like the verse and the verses around it, and then segment context, and then book context, which is just what we've done, you know, just now as we've been looking at these different context clues. Any thoughts or comments from you, Daniel, before we move on? Well, I get what you're saying about don't get too like lost in the weeds of another section. But since we're going to that to look at the definition of the word, how it's used, I feel like it's hard to know how much to take and how much to leave from that. Um, what are the some inferences you're seeing from that passage? Well, I mean, I can assume that it's like something specifically for that guy that is why he's saying to give up everything. But I don't really see why that's more legitimate than just saying like, you know, we're all supposed to do likewise. No, that's good. So the evidence is in Matthew 19, being perfect involves giving up everything you own. Mm -hmm. The inference then is the command in Matthew 5 is to give up everything we own to be perfect. Yeah. Right? That's what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. So then I think that's a good inference to draw. Although that doesn't fit the therefore, really, other than maybe like give everything to other people because he's saying, you know, if you only care about your own people, everyone does that. Right. So that's that's good. So then you're going back to five and saying, like, is there anything in five about giving up what you own? Because, yeah, it seems like if that's specifically what it means to be perfect, like you have to give up everything you own, then it seems like that would also be included in the more more immediate segment context Mm. of Matthew chapter five. Yeah. But I mean, you can kind of make it fit, I guess, Okay, because of the thing I was saying, like where he talks about even the pagans would do stuff for their people, you know? Yeah. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's along the same lines, which I think is the important part. Because mm-hmm. he doesn't say pagans wouldn't give up everything they own. They w- they may give of their surplus, but they don't give up everything. He doesn't say that, but he says similar concepts. Yeah. So I think that points us away from just the specific of giving up everything you own and some of these concepts around that. Does that make sense? Somewhat. I mean, I still am not sure that it's like... So can I just put that aside or is it, you know, that's more the way I want it to be anyway, because I don't want to have to get rid of everything. Right. No, I think that's good. But then also you could say, like, could selling everything be another way of saying, like, have everything be surrendered? Yeah. But that also is kind of an optional interpretation, I feel like. Right. Are you just like trying to get the answer out that you want? Yeah, that requires less immediate action. Yeah, and so I do think at this point, our consideration is moving to that question that would be an interpretive question from Matthew 19. Mm -hmm. Does perfection require 
us selling everything we have. And so if that's the question, then you're going to want to look at definitions based on that verse. And then you're going to want to look at the book context of Matthew to see if that's the requirement, you know, in general for the followers of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're going to want to like orient your whole discussion based on that question. Okay. Which, yeah, we're not, we're trying not to do that necessarily right now. It's okay to do that. It's okay to move from question to question in your Mm -hmm. own personal devotion time. But it's also like you're kind of moving on from this question in Matthew 5 a little bit, even though it's very relevant, like you're saying. Okay. And so right now we're using what do we see in Matthew 19 that is evidence for Matthew chapter 5. And you pointed it out well. It could mean that you need to give give up everything. Yep. But again, the question we're trying to determine is what is meant by Jesus' statement in 548, you therefore must be perfect. So we want to always keep that question central. After after you're done looking at the context and pulling all the evidence out of the context, one thing that is good to do is kind of like summarize what you found so far. Mm-hmm. And so that's, Daniel, what you're saying as far as um, if you have inferences that don't have as much weight behind them, then when you like summarize them, uh, it can kind of help put that into words. Okay. So then you can have like a maybe in there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I put context points toward the conclusion that perfect has to do with God's complete, inclusive, nothing being left out love. This love is offered to all persons regardless of their actions or ethnicity and may be necessary for entering the kingdom of heaven. So that's what I drew from the context so far. So the next step that I move towards here is called word usage. This is looking at where else does the same word, teleos, occur in the rest of the New Testament. Oh, okay. So not just in the chapter. That's right. So this is not necessarily the context. It's the word specifically. Okay. Mm -hmm. And again, like context is the most important. We spent the most time on that and it should, it should be given the most weight. But go ahead, Paul. Where else do we see this used in the New Testament? So we have Romans 12, 2. I'll go ahead and read the first few, and then we won't read all these, but let's read a couple. Um, I'll do Romans 12, 2. Daniel, you want to read first, or go ahead and find 1 Corinthians 2, 6, and Joel, 1 Corinthians 13, 10. I'll go ahead with Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Quick note on that before we move on. Um, just as you're noting these extra word usage, you're going to want to at least make a note about what you're getting from it. So perfect in this verse describes the will of God and seems to contrast the ways of the world. It's compared to good and acceptable. Okay, go ahead, Daniel. Okay. From 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Okay. Okay, so here the word teleos is translated as mature, and it once again stands in contrast to the world or age. And definitely shows that people are considered that. Mm. In 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to start in in, uh, verse 9. It says, Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only a part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. When I grew up, I put childish things away. Interesting. That definitely also has the maturity connotation because he's comparing it to growing up. Right. But then he talks about the perfection comes as if it hasn't yet. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and it's interesting too. It's also being used to describe heavenly or godly completeness. Yeah. So anyway, um, using the Blue Letter Bible, mm-hmm. you can find where else this is used in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And it's really helpful to look through like how else is this word used because it'll give you a clearer picture of how uh, people at that time understood the concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this one's used quite a bit. Several other passages that you could find on Blue Letter Bible for this specific word. Good. As you're looking through the New Testament, that'll uh, help you understand your question, help you come to answers. So uh, again, then we'll do a quick summary of word usage, like we did a summary of of context. I'm using my what I did for my assignment. It's not necessarily right or the best way to do it, but it's what I came up with. And so my summary is that the weight of evidence from biblical usage point towards perfection as a divine completeness, lacking nothing. Yet many passages also use teleos to describe maturity which seems less relevant to Matthew 5, but should still be considered. That's good. That's a good summary, I think. So just from my standpoint, I, I think that the maturity one is is maybe less relevant because that, that seems to be how Paul typically uses it, but might not be as relevant to Matthew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I was surprised at the number of instances where that's the, the English translation we get. Maturity. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that has to do something with the English concept concept of perfection, you know, where we tend to think of like no error and no limit and stuff like that. Actually, during this whole time, I've been kind of thinking for most of English's history, if not for the entire history of the English language, there's been influence from the Bible on the language, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe in the Middle Ages, they didn't have access to the Vulgate, or Latin was the Vulgate, but they didn't have the English. So why why didn't English develop to think more the way Hebrews think, or the way Greeks think, if that has been such a big impact? That's a big question. Yeah, I guess so. That's probably too big. My just immediate thought, because I'm in church history right now, has to do with how much... Mm-hmm. Greek influence there is on mm. our culture and thinking. And Roman. Yeah, yeah. So isn't the Platonic idea of perfect more this idea of absolute, nothing wrong, complete, spotlessness kind of deal? Well, when you bring up Platonic ideals, uh, his whole thing was that there's like the forms. Everything we see in the world is just like a shadow of the form. So. And that does have an implication of a sort of perfection because even concepts like tree, but there's like one ultimate form of tree and all the trees we see are like different shapes that reflect the ultimate form of the tree that lives in the world of forms that we can't see. Mm. And we just recognize it because it calls back to something that's inside of us. Yeah, I do think that bleeds into our concept of perfect because people often think like, there's no perfection on earth. Like nothing can be perfect. We can never be perfect. And so I, I think that kind of can bleed over from that. Yeah. Unattainable standard. Yeah. So, all right, let's move on. Uh, word usage was the next evidence. What do you have after that, Paul? The next one I have is scriptural testimony. This is zooming out even further, looking at the entire Bible. And is there anywhere else in the Bible that might deal with our question here? I would like to ask a question about terminology then. Sure. Are the terms context, um, something, and oh gosh, basically it sounded <laughs> like we had these different terms, but the meaning was same segment. Context, word usage. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. And and the meaning, okay, so is context simply another way of saying same segment? Word usage is another way of saying look in the same book. No, look at the same word. Oh, the same. No, but first he said, here's when when else is that word used in the same book, right? Right. And he's that's context. Yeah, within the book. Oh, okay, that's so context. Okay, okay. So context is just within the same book. Word mm-hmm. usage is only within the same testament. Well, you can also look at the, it's just, you can't go Hebrew to Greek necessarily because it's not the exact same ah, word. Okay, okay. But you could look at the um, like the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and see where that word is used in the Greek Septuagint. But it, you can't do like a specific word study for the Hebrew because it's going to be a different language. Right. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of that. Okay. So that's why the next one's called scriptural testimony. And it's not necessarily just looking for that word. It's looking for that concept. When you look at the entire Bible, how does the Bible inform how we understand what does it mean to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect? Are there other places throughout the Bible that can help us understand this? So at this point, because we're crossing languages, you're more looking at, even though the languages are different, where are instances where the concept may be hearkening back to that platonic form of perfection? Yeah, and like in general, does the Bible teach that there's this unmeetable standard? Does the Bible teach that there is a divine standard that we can live up to? Does the Bible teach that that standard is necessary to be saved? It's like, what does the Bible teach regarding these questions? Yeah, so do any specific biblical accounts jump to mind when we think about you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? I think of other places in the Bible where it compares our action to God's and requires us to be like God. Mm. Um, I know there's other places where it says stuff like that. You should do this as I have done this or whatever. So that's a biblical concept is reflecting God being like God in the way that he acts. Yeah. Yeah, So let me read the one that stuck out most to me, which is Leviticus 19.2. Say to all the congregations of the sons of Israel, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And so uh, it seems that Jesus was pretty much referring to that in this command, but replaced holy with perfect. Hmm. Do you think that's just a function of the language? Well, but holy appears in the New Testament too, so it wouldn't be that. I think that even the, the issues that people have reading today about like, oh, Jesus can't mean perfect. Like, how is the command be holy as God is holy less of a standard? You know, like that's a, an extreme standard. God's holiness is per- perfect. He has perfect holiness. So if we're called to be holy as God is holy, mm-hmm. again, that's a standard we're definitely not going to meet on our own. And it's this what some people would think, oh, well, we're not actually supposed to be like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and so what's cool about this is is Jesus is alluding to this verse, which has to do with one's relationship to the law, right? The people of Israel and how they relate to the law of God. But Jesus adds this familial language of son and father. Mm. So it's really cool. He's he's taking this concept of being holy in relation to the things of God. But now he's adding this language of son and father. That's good. So for my inference from this was that it suggests that perfect in Matthew 5, 48a is more about who our father is than who we are. Mm. And then just also noting the the word change from holy to perfect, I think is interesting as well. Yep. Okay, so that leads us to the final step that I used, which is the history of interpretation. 
That's just a way of saying commentaries, <laughs> basically. What have other people said about it? How have other people interpreted this passage? And commentaries are readily available online, too. Uh, so just anybody who's listening and doing Bible study, um, you you can access these online. Yeah, and I mean, this could be a never-ending part of the study. Obviously, there's so many commentaries. There's so many people that have great scholars that have come before and studied the Bible. And so um, I just picked two for this study. Yeah, you definitely want to look at commentaries. And then like if if the conclusion that you're coming to with all your evidence thus far, like no commentary has, you're probably wrong. Okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you want to be sure that throughout the history of the church, other great Bible scholars have thought similar things. Mm-hmm. It kind of is like a safeguard, this last step. It's like, okay, am I way off base here or have other Bible scholars been saying similar things? There could be new findings or stuff like that. Like that can happen. But for sure, you would definitely want to say like, whoa, like, why is nobody else saying this? Where is my where am I branching away from these people so that you'd want to use it to like go back over and like probably do some more thorough? Like, how are these other people getting to their conclusions versus how I got to my conclusion? Yeah. And see if it's legitimate or if there's some errors that you're making in your logic and your understanding of the context and stuff like that. And again, at this point, you might say, well, why don't you just read commentaries and not do all this work to study for yourself? But like anything you do in life, knowing how you get somewhere actually is the sign that you understand what's going on. And it helps you teach others, because if you're going to move on to a proclamation where you would actually like preach off this passage, you need to be able to explain mm-hmm. to other people what it means. And so you ha- if you've just gone the commentary, that's going to be pretty shallow. Yeah. And your appreciation of those findings is going to be very diminished. Let me just give an example of how commentaries come alongside our findings by reading this segment from R.T. France. He says, Jewish society has come to view the law as a comfortable set of rules that one should follow. But Jesus challenges them to think about the motivation behind the law. Not a set of rules, but a lifestyle in light of the perfect standard of God. Matthew 5.48 alludes to Leviticus 19.2, so he saw that connection as well where we see holy in place of perfect. Noting also the use of teleos in a higher standard for the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 21. He also refers to this part we talked about. This perfection thus sums up the exceeding righteousness of 520, leveling the playing field for all to have access to the kingdom while promoting a perfect standard far beyond exact requirements of the Old Testament. So you can see how a lot of his findings are similar things that we've noted. And what stands out to me about that just now is before I was focusing on the, you know, what if you're not matching up with it and, you know, kind of using it as a safety net, as a red flag, all that. But the other side of that is when you look at it and see them saying the same kind of things that you found on your own, it's a real encouragement at your own comprehension and your ability to make connections in scripture. Yeah, I think it's really encouraging when you start seeing other commentaries like, find similar things and they their conclusions are similar but then maybe they'll add a little bit here and there to like give you an even richer understanding that's like what you want one more short one uh donald a hagner said 548 serves as a confirmation of 545 the disciples are to love their enemies as the father does moreover the exceeding righteousness of the kingdom involves a call to be like the father the law and the prophets 517 
are fulfilled in loving God, neighbor, and enemies. Thus, for Matthew, perfection involves unconditional love for all persons, which is a reflection of God the Father. So again, just interesting thoughts from commentary. Great. The final step, the conclusion, is to summarize your findings, to take all the inferences and write a summary paragraph or more about what you've come up with. So before I I read my final summary, Joel had mentioned before that you may end up with two major possibilities or, you know, options that you think could be correct. And so it can be good to note those. Um, So, for example, the way that that Dr. Bauer did it in his example in class is he gave two examples. He says perfection in this context is required for participation in the kingdom and for eternal life. And he noted that the contextual evidence points toward that direction. But he also gave the option that perfection is not required for participation in the kingdom, but is a stage of Christian maturity. And he said that word usage, especially Paul in Hebrews, points in this direction. So like Joel had said before in previous episodes, you can have different options. And then you say, okay, the weighted evidence seems to favor option A. And so you go with that option. But it's okay to note that there may be two potential options in your findings. This is what I came up with. The meaning of Jesus' statement in Matthew 5, 48a, you therefore must be perfect, is that we are to be like our Heavenly Father, specifically in completeness, unconditional, perfect love. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must not only love God and neighbor, but also enemies, evil and good, just and unjust, tax collectors and Gentiles, thus fulfilling the law and the prophets. It's a radical lifestyle of complete obedience to our Heavenly Father, not out of duty, but out of love. This perfection is made possible through sonship, relation to the Heavenly Father, and is available to all persons, not only the spiritually elite, through the fulfillment and power of Jesus Christ. Well said. Thanks. I hope that people can see how this process takes you from like, oh, this, I have a question in the Bible to like really coming to some fulfilling, thorough answers. Um, That's one of the things that's so exciting about this method of inductive Bible studies. You find a passage, Jesus says to be perfect. What does that mean? And then you can really come to Mm -hmm. thorough, thoughtful, consistent answers um, through like study on your own without necessarily having to only rely on others or having learned Greek or anything like that. Uh, so I hope that's exciting for people. And, um, I, I always feel like it's really, really exciting and enriching. Yeah. It was huge for me going through this class and, uh, really gave me a deeper passion and love for scripture. All right. Well, I better go. 